Testimonies are taken care of? Nothing to do. I'm getting off cheap tonight. It's easy. Now, most of my most of my studies all start with a question. I don't know. I, I'm sure that most of you are like that. I hope you are. I hope you ask a lot of questions of Scripture. I hope you ask a lot of questions of yourself. I ask a lot of questions because that's how I tend to work through and and understand things. So if I was going to ask you a question, <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure everyone in this room has probably done this. Maybe you haven't. But if I was a, if I was to ever if I was to ask you if you've ever asked yourself either quietly or out loud to somebody else, I wish I could and you fill in the blanks like somebody else can. In other words, I wish I could play the piano like that person. Or I, I, I always wanted to learn, you know, I always wanted to play. I love the violin. So my wife got me a violin for my birthday or whatever. It wasn't Christmas, right? No. For my birthday, I'm sure it was a gift. It was a nice gift because I just love the violin. I love the sound of the violin. And it sits on a shelf in my closet, and that's where it's been for 20 years. But I love the violin. I'd love to be able to play the violin. There's probably people in here that would love to be able to swing a golf club like other people maybe you admire. I don't know why you'd care about golf, baseball, tennis, football, hockey, soccer, any of that. We all enjoy it to some degree, I'm sure. But I'm sure at some point in your life you've looked at somebody and thought, I wish I could like them. Well, most of the time when we ask those questions of ourselves, we, we look at it and we go, you know, I wish I, I wish I could be successful in business like them or I wish I could learn my trade like they know their trade. I wish, I wish that I could be like them because I see them as being successful. And we ask ourselves that and a lot of times we'll look at it like I did with the violin and I go, I'd really love to be able to play the violin. But what do I do? Just like we all do with a lot of things, we count the cost, don't we? We count the cost and we realize that in order to do something as well as that person that you admire, it will cost you something, won't it? it nothing comes in this life for free. Everything in this life costs you something, right? I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about it. It costs you something to get here tonight. It's costing you your time and it's costing you gas. It costs you something to get here. Nothing in this life will come without a cost. So this title of my message is The Cost of Success. Because when I ask myself those questions, I would really wish that I could be like Jesus when He would speak to people and have the answers or have the response or know what to say, know what to do. That's going to cost me something, isn't it? It doesn't come just because I come to church and read a couple of books, does it? There's going to be costs involved. So we understand that in order for us to achieve things that we deem as valuable, whether it be education, a better job, learning your trade better, like I said earlier, swinging a golf club better, it's going to be a waste of your time. But it's going to require something of it. You're going to have to buy some equipment. You're going to have to spend the time practicing. Now, I know you're not going to believe this. Somehow I found myself watching one of these inspirational channels. And it was a story about Pete 
Maravich, of all people. Pistol Pete. Now, I don't know how many in here ever heard of Pistol Pete Maravich. Okay, enough of you. Younger people, maybe not. But I watched this story about Pistol Pete Maravich. And all I could do, it was, it was supposed to be an inspirational story because we, we know that he got saved at a Billy Graham crusade toward the end of his life. But when he was younger, we, we could admire him. I've never, I, you know, I maybe saw him play maybe once. I, I'm not a basketball fan. We'll get to hockey in a minute. But I know I'm in the right part of the country when we're talking about basketball, right? Pistol Pete Maravich. Excessively practiced. That's all he did from a young age. Learned to dribble. I think he learned to dribble on railroad tracks. He could dribble a basketball out of a car window while it was moving. He'd dribble on his, uh, when he was on his bike. He could do all kinds of tricks. He practiced. Did that cost him something? It cost him a lot of his time, didn't it? And yet he became, and he still holds, from what I understand, college records to this day. And he's back 1950s, 60s. I don't, you know, I, I didn't write that down. But he was, he's into the 70s. Into the 70s, like I said, I'm not a basketball fan. But let's talk about hockey. I can't recommend the movie, but I, I, I'm, I watch it because I'm a hockey fan. I always, you know, I, I grew up in northern Illinois, Blackhawks fan when I was a kid. But if you've ever seen the movie, and I, I'm not going to recommend it because there's probably three things in it that, you know, just are unnecessary. They're not horrible. But it's called Miracle. It's the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And the time and the effort and the excruciating pain that those men had to go through to not only learn to play hockey better, they had to learn to endure so many things that by the time they were done at one practice, it was no longer, I'm so-and-so from this college, but I'm so-and-so and I play for the United States. They learned that they were a team. But it took time. Any Olympian is going to invest a little bit of their life. Olympian, any Olympian who's trying to win the gold is going to give up an awful lot. We know that. And even, you know, they're, and they're, they're trying to achieve what? A fading crown of glory. Paul calls it a perishable crown. Something that they would invest that much time into wishing. They just want to. They so desperately want to win that gold medal that they are willing to diet a certain way and train a certain way and get up a certain way and get up as early and as late and all, all the things you need to do to be very excellent at what you want to be. Well, is there any spiritual virtue or some spiritual quality that you wish you had more of? Maybe there isn't. Maybe there's one or two of you in here who are perfect and complete, and I'd like to talk to you afterwards. But I know in my own life there are things that I would like more of as far as a spiritual virtue or quality or character in my life. But I know it's going to cost me something. It's not going to come just because I make my way through those doors, sit down in a chair, 
worship for 20 minutes or half an hour, whatever it is, listen to a sermon for an hour and 11 minutes, and go home and do my devotions. Those are all good things. I'm not, we're not saying anything's wrong. Or go to a, you know, there's plenty of Bible studies in this group. You go to a Bible study. There, those are all good things. But what I really want to talk about, and the thing that we should really want to pursue is wisdom and understanding. Because as God's people, it's what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. I mean, faith is important. We need faith. We live by faith. Our faith is how we are pleasing in God's sight. And yet He's called us to wisdom and understanding. Be wise and people who know how to discern and perceive and understand and know what's going on. Can put things together and understand the times we live in, what people are going through, just different things that we need wisdom for. And we think about wisdom, and I'm just going to give you a couple of brief definitions. Spurgeon said that wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. See, because we all have knowledge. We come, we come to church, we gain knowledge, we read books, we gain knowledge. We, we can come to know a lot of things. I mean, we can become pretty intellectual Christians, can't we? I mean, I know some. They're probably not in here. <laughs> we don't need to be intellectual Christians. We want to be those people who have taken the knowledge, the data, the information that we have, and have it become wisdom. Have it become understanding, not just a head full of knowledge. Wisdom has to do with the ability to live godly. It really does. I mean, it's, it's not just somebody who's a smarty or a smart aleck, or you know, somebody who just knows everything. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody who knows how to take the knowledge they have and make application of it in their life. That's what I want for me. I want to be able to walk in that kind of wisdom, where every day of my life I walk in wisdom and understanding in all areas. When we talk about understanding, I've already mentioned, understanding has the idea of perception or, or, or discernment or deep thought, or able to see the meaning of things. So when we talk about wisdom and understanding, Colossians 4, 5, and I'm just going to read some, we'll look up a few, but Colossians 4, 5 tells us to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, and he tells us to redeem the time. And redeeming the time is another thing we need to do. And I know we're heading up, a lot of you are going to the seminar some of you aren't, but this, I kind of look at this whole time of year as, as things are winding down, you know, the year is winding down and all these things, that, this change of routine is happening. I think it's a good opportunity for us to look at our personal life and what cost we're putting into being who we want to be. There's no sense going to the seminar if it's nothing more than four more meetings going out to eat different places, fellowshipping with people you haven't seen in a while. None of this is bad. But it could be more than that. And same with people who choose not to go. You can take this opportunity to maybe just to dedicate yourself to examining 
What have I done with my life this year? What, 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 am, what have I let slip? What things that I wish I could be like, I made no application to be like that. We can all give thought to that. It doesn't matter seminar or not. But like I said, this is a good opportunity. The end of the year, change of routine, let's take a little time and think about it. If you would, turn over to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And verse 6. This is what he says to his people. He says, Therefore, be careful to observe them. He's talking about his laws and his statutes. For this, his commandments, his laws and his statutes, this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, we, we have to say, okay, so what is their wisdom and understanding? Where did that wisdom and understanding come from? Because they were God's called people or because they had something that no one else in the world had. They had God who spoke directly to them. A nation, as it goes on to say in verse 8, what a great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day. He talks about... This is a nation that has a God near to them, that the God is near to them, and he, they can call upon Him. No other nation had the living God as their God. No other nation had the righteous statutes and commandments that these people had. But as they learned to obey and observe them, that became their wisdom. That's how they learned to live amongst what we would say is the world. We're different than the world, aren't we? We live differently than the world. We don't think like the world. We shouldn't think like the world. The world should have little influence on how we do things. It's God's way, and that's how we live, and that's what we establish, and that's what we show the world is our wisdom in obeying Him, keeping His commandments, and hearing His voice and listening. This is how you're going to gain wisdom. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're not going to look up a lot of verses, but we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111.10, if you want to write it down. A good understanding have all those. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. Your wisdom, our understanding, comes from hearing and obeying and following what he said. The fear of the Lord. You preach an hour on that one, right? At least an hour. We're not going to go there. I'll get sidetracked. We'll go on too long. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's when you tremble at his word and you say, whatever you say, I'm going to do. Now, that's wise. That's when a person becomes a wise person. When they go, God said it. That's it. I'm doing it. I'm, it's God. If he said it, then that's wisdom, and I'm going to walk in it. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. These are verses we've heard at least twice in our life. 
And it doesn't matter if you heard it 102 times, it's still necessary. And it's still a daily pursuit, still a daily inclining of the ear. It's still a daily seeking after Him. It becomes our life. This should be our life, is the pursuit of wisdom and understanding. We're told in Proverbs 8, 11, it says, For wisdom is better than rubies. Wisdom is better than rubies. 16.6 of Proverbs says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? How valuable is the wisdom that you have? Can you even put a price on it then? It's priceless, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that what we're being told here? That your pursuit of rubies and gold and silver pale in comparison to the value of wisdom and understanding. It doesn't matter how many millions of dollars you make in your life. If you have no wisdom or understanding, you've got little to nothing. You have nothing. There are plenty of multi-billionaires in the world, unregenerates, that learned how to make lots of money. And we can say they're wise. But if they die, are condemned and go to hell, they're not real bright, are they? They've lost it all. So who is our source of wisdom and understanding? Turn to Job 28. Job 28. Wisdom and understanding that we need will never come from our own intellect. It's not something that we can derive from lots of book study. And I like books. I don't mind reading a book or two. And I don't mind studying. I like studying. I like finding answers to questions. But I realize in my own life, you can study something and you can have all that knowledge. We hear it probably once a month from this pulpit at least. That That's not really enough, is it? You need that knowledge to be turned into wisdom. So Job, Job says this in verse 12. He says, But where could wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, It's not in me. And the sea says, It's not in me. Wisdom, he says, it cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its ways. He knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure when he has made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. 
Then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil, that is understanding. The wisdom that we need is someplace that we need to seek out, isn't it? We need to receive wisdom and understanding from Him who has all wisdom and understanding. I mean, we understand God to be sovereign, right? We understand that God knows the end from the beginning, right? He sees everything. He knows everything you're going through. He knows knows what you're going to face tomorrow, next week, next year, tonight, tomorrow morning. He already knows all that. He is the one who has all understanding. He's the one that has all wisdom. We're the ones that need to seek it out. We're the ones that need to make an application of our lives to receive it from Him. Now, James tells us what? We can ask for wisdom, and He gives to all men and upbraids not. And yet Proverbs tells us we need to seek it as a treasure. So, yeah, God... You know, in James, I mean, if you're in a, a trial, I mean, there's nothing. You need wisdom. We all need wisdom. And we always need to ask for God for wisdom by faith. That's James. But we also need to pay something. We, it's not going to be gold or silver, is it? It's going to cost us something. So the wisdom and understanding that we need comes from God. He's the one that has all wisdom and understanding. It's not through man's limited efforts to gain any understanding so we all know that wisdom and understanding has got to come from god the source he's the one who created all things right what was what was the very cause of the fall in the Garden of Eden. What did what did Eve see in that apple that was desirous? It says that it had a desire to make one wise. She wanted a shortcut, didn't she? She wanted another way around being as wise as God was without God. And so comes the fall of mankind. That shortcut around God where we think, somehow, if I just take a bite of this apple, I'll have the wisdom I need apart from God. And the whole human race has suffered for it, hasn't it? Amen. So we need not just a head full of knowledge, but a heart full of knowing. There's got to be something more and that's an intellect. We need to come to a place where our hearts have spent time. Our, our, our time is spent in such a way seeking God that we derive wisdom from Him and understanding. That's going to cost you something. I'll tell you right now, it will cost you something. And you should never look at that cost and go, Really? You mean... You mean I... I I might have to quit swinging a golf club and trying to get better. You mean I might have to actually invest more 
of my personal time and resources into seeking God with my whole heart? Because a lot of times, you know, it's a shame, but we kind of don't want to do that. We find shortcuts. We, we, may, we find substitutes for these things. We don't want to pay the cost. I really don't think we always want to pay the cost to be as wise and understanding as we can. And if you're almost, well, you're sort of almost there. Go to Daniel chapter 12. <clears throat> and no, we are not going through the timeline of end time events. I just want us to look at a few things because I want us to see something that's in here. Now, Daniel did have a vision of the end times, didn't he? He saw the end. He saw things that were coming upon this earth that I'm sure he had no idea what he was looking at. I'm not sure, but I can tell by his reaction to what he was hearing that he was distressed. He didn't like what he saw or heard. So in Daniel 12, which is the chapter, it's the prophecy of the last days. At least that's what the title of my chapter says. But it says in verse 1, it says, At at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The resurrection, isn't it? Isn't that the last day's resurrection? Could be, right? Verse 3, it says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many at this time, at this vision, at this prophecy, at this prediction of what's coming on this earth, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And in verse 8, Daniel says this, Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, Lord, my Lord, what shall the end of these things What shall be the end of these things? And he says in verse 10, Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. There's coming a day when we just heard from John on the parable of ten virgins, the wise and the foolish. There's going to be a group of people at the end who have gonna, they're going to have made themselves available. They're going to have put in the time. They're going to have paid the cost. And they're going to be the wise ones. Because the wicked are going to just... Con- and I don't know if you've noticed, but the wicked just keep doing wickedly. And in my opinion, and I know I'm not that old, but it's just getting worse. No? Am I just imagining? We're not just imagining, right? There's something changing just in the 10 years I've been in this state. This was the... This was paradise when I moved here. I don't know what happened. I met people. (laughs) People. The wicked will do wickedly, but the wise. There's something about the wisdom that we need because if you're not wise, what are you? You're foolish or you're without understanding. There's something you're not going to get 
when it, the time comes for you to understand and be wise, if you haven't paid the cost, if you haven't taken the time, if you haven't invested what you need to invest to gain wisdom and understanding, you don't want to be in that place of not understanding, do you? No, we want to be those who shine. We want to be those who shine. We've been given wisdom and understanding from our Heavenly Father. And when all this comes to pass, and the end times that we, I believe, live in now, we are the ones that are supposed to shine in this world. Because we are the ones who have wisdom and understanding. It's not because we don't celebrate Christmas or Easter or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny. You know what I'm talking about. It's not so much about what we don't do, but it's about how we live in our daily life. And part of it is what we've learned about things. But wisdom and understanding characterizes the righteous in the last days. So like I said, we're at that time of year when there's kind of a disruption to the routine. You have an opportunity to go to a seminar. You get to see friends, family maybe. You get to hear the Word. You get to enjoy worship with, you know, larger than this 5,000. But even if you're not going, you can still take that break in routine and do something with it. Spend that time wisely. Redeem that time. Don't waste it on golf swings. So when we talk about seeking God, about finding wisdom, about gaining understanding, we know that it's all from Him. We know that without our own selves as human beings, we cannot attain it. So do we need to then find out what is God's prescribed means by which we, have, we can gain these things? Because you and I need it. I need it. We need to be wise people. Is there a prescribed means? Does God have any way? Or do we just kind of flounder through our Christian life wondering what? No, we have plenty of promises and our faith should get us all the way there. But even faith needs wisdom and understanding. Otherwise, you're just trying to put your faith in some words on a paper. Ink on paper is not going to be faith. Ink on paper represents what your heavenly Father has promised us. Our faith is in Him, but we have what He's promised. So some would call these Christian the classic Christian disciplines. You know, and there's books out there and there's things where we, we know of things like study and reading, memorizing Scripture, evangelism, serving, worship, stewardship, fasting. All these things are, are things that are taught in the Word, things that we as Christians should be engaged in as part of what your life is, as part of a, a exercise, so to speak. As Paul told Timothy in the 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, exercise yourself therefore unto godliness or discipline yourself, King James. The word is 
we get the same way the word exercise or discipline is the word that we get gymnasium from. So it's, it's to train. It's to keep working at it. Put the effort in, Timothy. Do what you need to do to train yourself onto godliness. That's where we're heading. So that's my introduction. Brother Tom said, long or short doesn't matter. Nobody has anywhere to go tomorrow. Now I want to talk tonight because I think this is probably one of the most neglected. And I'm not here to, I don't know any of your private lives or your routines or your devotion. I really don't. But I know for myself and for others that I know and just reading things, contemporary things that about Christians and Christianity. And, and we very well may be talking about people out there. But I want to talk about prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude. Those things that are personal to us. Those things that are hidden from the rest of us. Yet they should manifest something in the real world. Because we've got plenty of examples of what those things should produce in our lives. Now meditation, meditation, I realize in thinking about this that we should really not, or I'm not going to do it, make rules. Because when you start making rules and saying, as I heard somebody say a long time ago, I don't know how anybody could get by without an hour of prayer in the morning. Right away that compels me to put an hour of prayer in the morning or I'm not going to do well. And the first day that you don't do an hour in the morning, is the devil not in your ear going, you failed, you're done, it's over, forget it. So as soon as we make rules, we become legalistic in a way. The Pharisees had all kinds of rules, didn't they? The Pharisees liked to, what, tithe every kind of little seed. They liked to fast twice a week, and everybody knew it. They made rules. I'm not saying there aren't means and there aren't principles and there aren't things that we need to do. But if I tell you, you need to pray three hours in the morning or you're, you're not as spiritual as somebody else, that's not going to work, is it? Your relationship with God is personal. You should have a desire in your heart to want to be in that place. Spend the time in His presence. Be in that secret place because that's where God says He sees you. And we pray together corporately. That's good. We have prayer meetings. That's good. We can pray in agreement. That's good. We can pray for the sick. That's good. But when we talk about meditation, prayer, silence, and solitude, that's not always easy to do because... It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Now, if we start making rules, and we read about Bevington and his five days in a hollow log with squirrels feeding them acorns, I started looking around my yard. I didn't find a log big enough. I don't need to be Bevington five days in a hollow log. He needed that. I don't need to find a hollow log and mimic someone else's hour, three hours, ten hours, five days. I, that's not what this is about. Jonathan Edwards would spend much time 
in the woods, meditating, pondering, and praying. Hudson Taylor, great missionary to China, knew that meditation, pondering Scripture, would lead to a more deeper prayer life. Because he, he'd ponder on the Word. He would think about what God had said. And it would lead to prayers that would be more of faith. I don't know if you've ever heard, probably most of you heard, Susanna Wesley. Time would come when she needed some quiet time, some private time, some Bible study and prayer. And they had lots of kids, I understand. And she'd pull her apron over her head. And that was the signal to the older kids, you take care of the little ones, mommy needs some time alone. And she'd read and pray under her apron. Can you do that? I mean, is that worth something? Is that, is that acceptable before God? First thing I did was look around a house for an apron. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> what I'm saying is, let's not mimic these men. We have another example for us. And even Jesus and his life, I don't know. I don't think I could mimic that, what he did in his prayer time, his solitude, his going into the mountains, his going into the wilderness, spending all night in prayer. Things like that. We don't think, we don't hear much about that kind of thing. But yet men of old, these men that we kind of look at Mueller, George Mueller, people like that, and Wesley, and all these men, Whitfield. We look at them, wow. And we don't see this part of the cost that they were paying so that they could be successful in the Christian life and in their ministry. So for me, a personal testimony, you don't need to mimic me, but you know, we used to go on a Baptist yeah, that's right. I was in a Baptist church for a while when I first got saved. Baptist church. Nothing wrong with that. And we'd have youth retreats. And you're going to say, now we know exactly why Jeff is the way he is. But I was the kind of kid. You know, I, was, I wasn't a kid, but I was a younger person. And everybody's out tobogganing. We usually have them in the winter. People are out tobogganing and throwing snowballs at each other. You know what I'm doing? I'm in my room reading. And everybody's wondering, where's Jeff? I'm praying. I'm reading. I'm taking the opportunity. This is away from my routine. A retreat. I thought the whole idea was I'm retreating out of the world and I'm going to take this opportunity to spend time with the Lord. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. You know, it's not that I did that the whole time. And at men's retreats. I went to a couple of men's retreats when I got older. And every time mealtime would come along, I'd never be there because I'd be fasting. And, and that's just me. That's just strange Jeff. But when I was my whole, and I'm, i got to downplay this, I was my whole one semester at that little bitty Bible school in upstate New York. I learned more there about how to hear from God and how to study and learn on my own than I did from all the classes. Because there was things there. You didn't have a TV you didn't have a radio. Guess what? We didn't even have cell phones. There was no iPods. There was no Walkman. Uh, and now you're going, how old is this guy? 
I had an 8-track tape player in my car. Just telling you how old I am. (laughs) But we had in that school two hours mandatory after dinner. I I think it was 7 to 9. or I don't remember. It was so long ago because I'm that ancient. Two hours. You had to either be in the library or in your dorm room quiet. You could study. You could read. You could pray. But two hours you were required to be in one of those two places. And you know what? Those are some of the best two hours I ever had. Because I learned to sit quietly. I learned to sit in the library and just read and ponder things. And then we had, you know, everybody in this little school had to do some part of work, either to wash pots and pans, you know, serve in the cafeteria, whatever you had to do. One of the things I got to do was called night watches. And it was, you'd, you'd be selected and you'd have a certain shift in the middle of the night to kind of walk the grounds, check the boiler, make sure the heat was still on, make sure nobody was trespassing because they'd have, you know, mischievous people come into the campus and do things. And you'd walk. And, you know, in the heart of the Catskill Mountains, that is some of the most beautiful country I think I've ever been in. And when I could walk those night watches and it was perfectly still and quiet... Again, some of the best times I can remember. Because what would I do? I I didn't have one of these. I didn't do this all night. I didn't have any of that. I had God's Word and I had time. And I could walk and I could pray and I could ponder and I could think. And you know... (laughs) Sister Bonnie said something to me a couple weeks ago how we, as we see the end times coming, we should be lifting our eyes for our redemption draws nigh and all she sees is this. Everybody's head is down. We're not, we're engaged a little too much with devices. Maybe you're not. I think some of that is becoming a detriment to our spiritual life. It's, it's, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to really understand and see that or not, we need to understand that technology is for us to control, not for it to control us. I mean, every time technology hits the world, cars come along, that's great. I like my car. I like to be able to get places. I don't want to walk here. (laughs) I'd still be on the road. But you know, cars are a great thing, but cars were misused. Cars became mobile motel rooms. Does that make a car bad? No, it's not the car. It's how people use them. It's how people allow things to control them. So what is meditation? What is it not? Meditation is not transcendental meditation. It's not yoga. It's not clearing your mind. It's not an inner focus. It's not hearing voices. It's not saying mantras. It's none of that. The Bible tells us that meditation is a focus on His Word and what He said to us. Meditation. It's to muse pensively. These are definitions I got from dictionaries. It's to murmur or ponder. It's to actually converse with with oneself and hence out loud. So if you see me talking to myself, it's all right. Mutter or to revolve in the mind. 
or commune. It can even mean complain. So we could say that meditation can be good or bad, can't it? So I have to ask myself, what do I meditate on all day? I was challenged the other day. I got to looking at this and thinking, and I thought, am I meditating all day on what's not going right? Am I finding myself looking at what's not right and how somebody else or something else isn't working out? Is this my meditation all day? Because guess what? I realize this is forming my day. This is ruining my day. My meditation, your meditation, should be on His Word. It's what He said. Now, I'll just read it. We all know it, but I want to read it. Psalm 1. We all know what it says, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, that's the thing he values. That's the thing he has pleasure in. That's the thing he really desires and enjoys. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I got to sleep, but if I'm in a night watch like some of these people would have been, day and night. During the day, I'm awake. If I have a night watch like these people watching the wall or guarding, they're meditating on what? The thing they delight. His word. His law. And the result of that is what? Success. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. There's the result of you and I paying the cost of taking the time to meditate. We know Joshua's success was based in what? Meditating on the law day and night that he may observe to keep the commandments and then he would have good success. The cost of success is the time, the genuine heartfelt time that we spend meditating pondering, praying. So if we're going to revolve our mind around something, if we're going to murmur, we really need to follow the means by which God prescribed, and that's to meditate on His law day and night. I know we all have jobs. Most of us have jobs There's times in my day I have to focus on something other than His Word. I do. But when I've got time, am I redeeming it? Or am I frittering it away when the cost that I should be paying... And I'm not saying you can't play a round of golf. That's not what we're saying. Or hit a baseball. Or play catch with your kid. That's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about a life that says... I'm going to ponder His Word. I'm going to take something in the morning or at night. And shamefully, I don't know if I've ever done this. And I I don't understand. I mean, I, I like to listen to something when I go to sleep. So I would listen to a sermon. I'd listen to the Bible on tape or something. And I got to thinking, you know what? I need to just... It, I mean, the psalmist says that in 63.6, when I remember you on my bed... So 
When I go to bed now, I got a scripture in my mind, and that's all I meditate on. And that puts me to sleep. Bad habit to get into when you have to listen to something to fall asleep. But if you meditate on His Word, another meditation time, isn't it? So another thing that's closely connected with meditation is our personal private prayer time. And that's probably real easy to neglect because nobody knows about that, right? That's, that will cost you, in some people's mind, more than coming to a meeting. Because you know a meeting, you're just going to show up, people are going to see you, you're going to get to talk to your friends and buddies, you're going to worship, you're going to do all kinds of things that when you are in a personal time of prayer, nobody sees what you're doing. Who sees you? Who sees you? The one that sees you isn't there. That's the one we're to be pleasing. So when we think about prayer, Jesus taught... He's the same one that said, when you pray, Mark eleven twenty four. 24. Have you heard that verse? He's the one that said, when you pray, believe that you receive and you shall have. He did say that, right? He also said, ask, seek, and knock. He told us to pray in agreement with one another. He gave us a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we call it. Things that we should bring to mind, not repeat it, in vain repetition, but these ought to be things that we bring up before God. But when he told us in Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, right? The contrast there is the hypocrites are out on the corners doing what? Oh, I'm praying to God. I'm re- look at me. I'm spiritual because, look, I'm praying. No, he said in Matthew 6, 6, he says, but when you, when you pray... You go into your room or closet. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father sees you in your secret place. When you go, when he, I mean, he's not, if you don't have a closet to go into, that's really, he's talking about Susanna Wesley could pull her apron over her head. Is that her closet? Yes. Bevington's hollow log, is that his closet? Yes. But does it require you going somewhere? And doesn't it say shut the door? Did Bevington have a door on the log? No. What is it talking about? I mean, it's talking about set aside everything else that distracts you. Everything else of the world that wants to take your attention. You want to go into your room or your closet, wherever you need to go, and you need to pray in secret, knowing that your heavenly Father sees you and He will reward you. Because when Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, He said, didn't He go on to say, what father of you, being evil, would not give good things to His children? How much more? Will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? That's about as simple as it gets. You have a heavenly Father that already knows before you get there what you need. But when you go, He says, ask, you shall receive. Seek, you will find. Is that a promise or not? Or am I just, I'm not making that up, right? That's a promise that if I ask, I receive. Because I have a heavenly Father 
that's better than any one of you fathers in here and is willing to give me all good things. All I need to do is ask. He's not stingy. He's not up there withholding things to just be that way like an evil father might. So when we think of, we put all these together because I think they're, a, for me anyway, it's a big part of all together is meditating on his word, a focus on what he said, rolling something over and over in your head and chewing it like a cow would, you know, it's cud. Why? Because you want to have wisdom. Because you want to gain understanding. Because you are allowing God as you rove all this around in your mind. You're giving God that opportunity to reveal something to you. That you cannot get any other way. It's not that God doesn't speak to us here and now. But you may have a, a, a situation. You may have a trial. You may have a, a problem. You may have a lot of things going on in your life. God says, you come to me, you meditate, you trust me, you come to me, you ask, you knock, you seek, you come in your closet, you shut the door, and it's me and you. And you mull these things over, and you pay the cost, you take the time. Is it five minutes? Is it five hours? Is it five days? I'm not making rules. Because I know there are young mothers in here that may have two, three, four, five little ones running around. Do they have five hours? No. Do they wish they had five hours? No, I bet. I bet. But can, can we as husbands... Just for a little tiny bit, set some of our machoism aside and say, you know what, honey? Do you need one hour? I'll take the kids. I mean, could we do that? Could you do that for your wife? Or is that not allowed in here? Is that okay? <laughs> because, you know, it's probably be good for your mother of your children and your wife to have a half an hour, an hour. You take the kids. You're going to the seminar, you got lots of kids, maybe one time. Just take the kids down to the pool or take them for a walk. Let your wife have a half an hour or an hour. Maybe she needs that. We all need that time, that private time. So when we consider our real example, when we look at the life of Jesus, what do we see? When we think of Him and His prayer time, when we think of how He ministered in this world, He was given the Spirit without measure. Everything He spoke was the Word of God. Every word He breathed was the Word of God. Wouldn't that be really good if we ever could pay the cost, get to the point, where when we breathe His Word in faith, it's as if God is speaking to that situation through us because we've taken the time to ponder and to pray as He did. We're told that He departed to a solitary place and prayed. 
We're told that he, des- he, play- he went to a, a deserted place. We're told that when his disciples and him were so busy that they couldn't even eat, he said, listen, come away. Come away to a deserted spot, to a deserted place that you can rest. Maybe this is your weekend. Maybe this is your time. Take some time. It says many times that he was alone in the mountaintops praying. A lot, a lot of times we'd hear that he departed and went to deserted and lonely places. Why would the Son of God have to do that? Why Is it just to give us an example? Or was it necessary? Him as a man living as we do, that he heard from God. I mean, in, a, in Luke 6, it says... 6.12 it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Wow! And after that it said, The next day he chose his twelve. Did he need some wisdom? He chose his twelve after a whole night of prayer. Wow! Do I need wisdom? Do we have situations... Are we willing to pray all night? That's a long time, isn't it? Every time I try, I'm usually, like you, probably sleeping. Elijah. We know that Elijah heard a still, small voice. There's a place that we need to come to, I believe, that separates us from all. Everything in this world that wants to place demands on us. Things that are constantly wanting to distract you from the very thing you need to do. And that's spend time with Him. It's easier for me to listen to a sermon, to read a book, to pick a passage of Scripture. For some reason that's easier to do than to spend time in my office that I purposely have no windows in because I'm easily distracted. I like to sit in the dark and that's when I spend my time alone with God. And I went in there the other night and I shut the door behind me and it was pitch black dark except for the one, two, three, four, five, six, eight lights on devices between computers and phones. And the worst thing that could have happened was the answer machine flashing because that's What is that? That's a demand, isn't it? There's a phone call on here. Get it! Now! Maybe it doesn't do that to you, but it does to me. If I see something needs my attention, it places a demand on me. You know, when they built Solomon's temple, you you might know this verse, but when they built Solomon's temple, or when they were building it. In 1 Kings 6, 7, it says, And the temple, when it was being built, God's sanctuary, the place where they were going to meet with God, and the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone, finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. While you and I are being built as His temple, do we need some quiet? Do we need some solitude? Do we need to shut things down for 
five minutes, five hours, five days. Do we? I think we do. So what hinders us from doing these very things? And maybe they don't. I'm sure I'm talking to somebody else. What hinders us from meditating on his word diligently, seriously, focused, spending time in solitude? Well, I think in this generation, silence is uncomfortable. Silence is not something that a younger generation enjoys. Maybe you do. I do. I mean, when we work on a job, we don't even like a radio plan. I mean, it's just customers are like, I don't even know you're here. I, I just don't like anything going on. I don't like disturbing people, and I don't like being disturbed. But there's something about silence that us older people, I guess, really enjoy. I do. I like quiet. I like it quiet. I can think better quiet. But there's a generation today that has a need for voices, for music, for something constantly going on, for them to shut it down, for them to shut the door and go into their closet. They don't know what to do with silence. It's not comfortable because we... In this final days that Daniel saw of knowledge increasing and men running to and fro, we are being bombarded constantly with technology and things that are constantly wanting to put demands on us. We like, in some ways, we're being conditioned to always have that going on. I think when you read, you read in Mark about the, Mark in 4.19, he warns his disciples, he's warning these people, and he says, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. That's the opposite of meditating, pondering in quiet, Apart from the cares, or that word means those things which seek to distract. It's not necessarily just anxiety. It's the world wanting to put demands on every moment of your life. And unless we learn to shut them off, unless we learn to somehow carve out time, the world, I believe, will envelop us. Unless we take the action and... and find that I'm going to have to pay a cost here by shutting off something, it will then place a demand on me. It will demand my time. Every beep, every buzz, every tone, every vibration, every single thing that these devices do are what? Here I am. Answer me. Talk to me. Look at me. See what's going on. It's demanding your attention. And it's getting to be 24-7 for some. I think we live in the last days. Because I believe, personally, this is what Daniel saw and was disturbed by. 
fact that if Jesus is telling his disciples 2,000 years ago, what, what cares? What distractions in that world could there possibly be? I mean, I mean you got to think about it in those times. What, what, I mean, there was things to do, but not like today. Anybody who has a device, does anybody in here have one of those? Every one of you in here who has a device knows that I don't even, what is there, some 12 trillion apps that you can load on these things? And it just goes on and on and on. I think in some ways it's robbing us. It's robbing us of that simple simplicity of shutting down and entering into that place where God is, closing the door and receiving from Him, your Heavenly Father. Because if that phone goes into the closet with you, you can't focus on Him. Vines defines the word cares as to draw in different directions. That's what the world wants to do. It wants to tear us up. It wants to draw you in every direction it can. It wants you so distracted. And I know who's behind the world. And he's out there to steal, kill, and destroy. And he'll do it because he's robbed us of that time. Uh, let me wrap up. I, I've read a book. I read a book. I found this book to be very interesting. It's called The Next Story, Life and Faith After the Digital Explosion. Because maybe like you, I thought, you know what? I'm seeing technology like it always has changing our lives. It's causing us to live differently. And I don't believe it's all good. Technology is not evil in itself. It's for our use. But when technology runs your life, you need to find a way to put it in check. You need to learn enough is enough. Because I think you're being robbed. You're allowing all of that 24-7 and all that stuff, social media, all those things that can be good become an addiction, become something you're obsessed with. We can't allow that as His people. If you'll indulge me for a minute, I just want to read a a few excerpts because I I wasn't going to write all this down. But He talks about, and I'll be done shortly, He talks about the technological advancements in the world. And, and we're considered living in the information age. Isn't that great? Information age. But he says, and he starts at, at this point in the, this part, he says, in his account of the Lewis and Clark expedition, historian Stephen Ambrose notes, a critical fact in the world of 1801 was that nothing moved faster than the speed of a horse. No human being, no manufactured item, no bushel of wheat, no letter, no information, no idea, order or instruction of any kind moved faster. 
nothing had ever moved any faster. For all the benefits and advances America enjoyed, it was a society whose technology was barely advanced over the Greeks. The Americans of 1801 had more gadgets, better weapons, a superior knowledge of geography, and other advantages over the ancients, but they could not move goods or themselves or information by land or sea any faster than had the Greeks or Romans. Though they had lived 1,800 years after Jesus, they could make their way across America no faster than Jesus had made his way across ancient Palestine. 1,800. How many years ago is that? That's not much. Not in relation to the whole history of the world. This is why I think Daniel saw this age. He goes on to talk about about the middle of the 19th century, the steam engine, the steam locomotion transformed travel forever. It says, while the United States boasted only 40 miles of rails in 1830, just 10 years later it increased it to almost 3,000 miles. And 10 years later after that it was growing, it was narrowing in on 10,000 miles. By the end of the century, last century, or 1800s, right into the 19... What century is this? America had well over 160,000 miles of rails. And this in a nation that is 3,000 miles across. Goods, people, and information could now move at unprecedented speeds. Information was about to catapult ahead. Samuel Morris in 1844 sends a telegraph. Information, communication was changing, wasn't it? But we're only looking at a span of what? 200 years. Was anybody, nobody was bad, you were, nobody was born back then? So we've all been born into this age, haven't we? We've all seen things, some more than others. But I, in my short lifespan, has seen so much technology, so many advancements, and some of you younger people know nothing other than that. You're being conditioned to believe that that's the way life is meant to be. Then we have the television. That great thing that we all should have thrown away 20 years ago, or half of us did, and then we kind of dragged it back in. But on December 7th, 1941, what is that, Rudy? A day of infamy. Even as Japanese diplomats were conferring with Secretary of State Hull on peace measures, Nipponese planes were swooping down on Pearl Harbor. Five years later, 1946, only one half of 1% of American households even had a single screen in their home. 1946. Sounds like a long time ago. That's not that long ago. The invention of the television the world quickly transitioned from a print-based culture to an image-based culture. The human brain possesses images and words in completely different ways. The word is processed by the brain's left hemisphere, the area that deals with logic, sequences, and categories. The image is processed in the right hemisphere, the realm of intuition, holistic perception, not linear analysis. An image is processed in an instance while words take time and sequence. Once TV came along and image-based media came into being, what he's saying is we began to lose something. We began to 
no longer read about what's going on in the world. We just saw it. We no longer had to take the time to process what we heard or read. We just saw it. Our world changed. Our word changed. He goes on to say, he asked this question, and I think we could all ask this very important question. How can we tell if something has become an idol in our lives? One possible sign of idolatry is when we devote an inordinate amount of time and attention to something, when we feel less than complete without it. Researchers found that one-third of women between the ages of 18 and 34 check Facebook when they first wake up before they even head to the bathroom. 21% check in the middle of the night. 39% of them declare that they are addicted to Facebook. Hopefully nobody in here. Hopefully everyone in this room understands that it is a very useful thing, but it is never meant to control you. Three-quarters of teens and 93% of adults between the ages of 18 and 20 now now have a cell phone. We know that. Cell phone use has grown substantially among preteens, so that 58% of 12-year-olds now own one. I think at 12 years old, I wasn't even allowed to use the phone in the house. I don't think a child 12 years old needs a cell phone. Does any 12-year-old in here have a cell phone? I'm not looking. Digital addictions, addictions to the Internet and other technologies. This researcher says that she finds that for a growing number of people, the need to be in constant communication is so powerful that they cannot even turn off their cell phones in order to sit through a movie. Their obsession with their phones resembles other forms of addiction. We're being told that because our technological age that we live in, because of things that we now find to be so useful and yet can be so demanding and so addicting, are causing us to change the way we think about our lives. He says, and I'll finish with this, here is one of the great dangers we face as Christians. With ever-present distractions in our lives, we are quickly becoming a people of shallow thoughts, and shallow thoughts will lead to shallow living. There is a simple and inevitable progression at work here. Distractions lead to shallow thinking, And shallow thinking leads to shallow living. All of this distraction is reshaping us in two dangerous ways. First, we are tempted to forsake quality quality for quantity, believing the lie that virtue comes through speed, productivity, and efficiency. We think that the more must be better, and so we drive ourselves to do more, accomplish more, be more. And second, as this happens, we lose our ability to engage in deeper ways of thinking concentrated, focused thought that requires time and cannot be rushed. Instead of focusing on our efforts in a few directions, we give scant attention to many things, skimming instead of studying. We live rushed lives and forget how to move slowly, carefully, and thoughtfully through life. Sounds like the good old days, doesn't it? The point is, is that if we don't keep our technology in check it's causing us to think in little bitty blips all over and we're so busy 
thinking about every little thing that we never focus on deeply on any one thing. How does that affect your Christian life? It does. It causes you to approach God and His Word the same way. You're being conditioned to think that everything's got to be like this, when in fact it's this. For minutes, hours, whatever it takes, God's Word is not a digital technology. God's means and ways by which He speaks to us have never changed. We might be able to get a Bible on a, on a tablet or a device, but it never, re, it never replaces the way He speaks to us. Just because we're always in a hurry doesn't mean we demand that God be in a hurry and speak to me now. We need to be the ones who are willing to pay the cost to be successful, and it's going to require careful, deep thought to not allow our technology to ruin our Christian lives. So when Daniel said, many shall run to and fro and increase, and knowledge shall increase, we're living in that day. If you have a device in your hand, you probably have all the information you need from all over the world. You don't need it. You don't even really need to know what's going on in Czechoslovakia or Vietnam or China. You don't. There was a day when you didn't know. There was a day when wars were over and for weeks they kept fighting because it took weeks to get the information to them. Today, we got to know everything. It's causing us to be shallow thinkers because we're thinking about too many things and not on the thing. So we need to invest our spiritual life with all vigor and attention that we place on all the temporal things in this world. And this we have. The promise is that if we will pay the cost of success, we shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Amen? Let's pray.